if you're tying regional security dialogue um, and its success to major political breakthroughs, diplomatic breakthroughs, it's going to fail. Uh, and so the starting point for, uh, I think, uh, my own thinking, it's born of pessimism, um, but trying to be practical within that, that overall pessimistic frame to think about what are the things that might have uh, material impact on the lives and security of, of citizens of the region. This is episode number nine of the TCF World podcast. On this episode of TCF World, Michael Wahid Hanna and I are talking about security architecture in the Middle East. Hi, Michael. Hey, Thanasi. Good to be with you today. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, so today we're talking about um, about a subject that you have been working on with a lot of intensity over the last couple of years. And uh, the occasion for our conversation is the uh, the launching this month, uh, January of 2018, of a, of a gargantuan project called Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East, uh, and this is a comprehensive study that that you've uh, uh, organized into this this really pivotal question. You've brought together more than fifteen uh, researchers, um, and uh, and in a minute, I'm going to ask you to to explain the genesis and 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 uh, uh, rationale for for doing this and what the point of this this whole uh, research uh, is and why it's important. Uh, but first, um, just just give us an overview. What 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 is regional security architecture, and uh, and what um, what are we doing uh, in this uh, in this order from ashes project? Well, so regional security architecture looks different in different places. Um, in some regions, it is formalized and, and represents institutions uh, that are quite robust and have various kinds of norms and practices. Uh, in others, it is more informal and takes the form of um, various kinds of, of dialogue. Uh, but in, in any event, all of these, whether they are informal or formal, um, they represent systems that uh, emerge or established in regions. Uh, they can take the form of um, uh, practices, uh, you know, relations between states, uh, more formalized alliances, and in, in the most kind of robust form, uh, with the establishment of uh, institutions. Uh, and all of this is with the end of either preventing conflict, managing conflict, uh, but enhancing security. Uh, and most often we see this at the, at the regional level. Um, we have multiple examples. Um, we don't have such examples, however, um, in the Middle East, um, which is the start of this project. And to be clear, when we talk about security architecture, uh, we're not talking about uh, literal security architecture like a network of, of military bases. Um, and uh, and this is, I think, important because if, for me, this was a hard concept to grasp. We're also not talking uh, about things like NATO. Is that right? That is right. Uh, so NATO is a kind of classic example of a, a collective security organization. Uh, and when we're talking about regional security architecture, um, we're focusing on cooperative security. So um, not a kind of defense or military alliance, uh, but instead a kind of network of uh, relationships within a region um, that are aimed at you know, conflict prevention, um, confidence building, uh, 
uh, ensuring security more broadly uh, as opposed to a kind of military alliance. There's, you know, fundamentally distinct uh, endeavors. So this gets us to the nub of the problem uh, in the Middle East. Uh, I guess uniquely among regions in the world, uh, the Middle East lags behind all other parts of the world in, in security architecture. Describe, describe a little bit what kind of landscape we're talking about, and maybe can, can you start uh, venture an explanation as to why this region is so far out of whack with, uh, with the rest of the world? Well, in some sense, it shouldn't come as a total surprise, uh, because if we look at the economic uh, landscape, uh, the Middle East is perhaps the least economically integrated region in the world, um, with the kind of sole exception of the GC GCC states, which have um, had some success in, in terms of economic integration. Um, there's very little trade happening within the region. Um, and so, you know, as a starting point, uh, you know, those are not auspicious um, uh, auspicious signals as to um, how effective you're going to be at the security level. Uh, and so from there, uh, we have a region that has traditionally been uh, beset by uh, rivalries and competition uh, among states for leadership. Uh, we have a region that has not been unified by uh, uh, a common existential threat um, that could overcome some of that uh, uh, regional competition. Uh, we've had a great deal of uh, external intervention uh, that I think, particularly in, in more recent decades, um, has inhibited uh, regional efforts um, in the realm of security. Uh, many countries have looked outside the region um, to anchor their, their security, um, as opposed to looking internally. This is an interesting paradox because in other in other places or other moments of history uh widespread conflict uh has uh, ended up generating uh security architecture or in places like europe even even uh more secure uh collective security arrangements uh so uh, how is it that um the post-colonial middle east i mean that you know you say the the lack of a unifying threat how does that play out against the backdrop of a common experience of the colonial period and decolonization, and then a common uh, experience of, of war with Israel uh, since 1948. How come that didn't, um, uh, it didn't lead to some kind of uh, unifying or, or sort of focusing uh, energy? <laughs> well, the story of uh, Arab fracture and the lack of uh, um, Arab unanimity with respect to the Arab-Israeli conflict is <laughs> probably beyond the scope of... Uh, this uh, humble podcast. Um, but uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict has had um, a role in shaping that security environment. Uh, there is no post-Arab-Israeli conflict. I mean, that has become a structural feature of the region, um, and um, the region has never gotten beyond the conflict. Now, it has uh, decreased in its centrality to the politics and security dynamics of the region, uh, but it's never gone away, and there are uh, quite critical non-Arab uh, parties, um, namely Israel, Iran, and Turkey, um, who are outside the kind of common language area um, of the of the Arab world, but who are 
uh, key players, in fact, some of the strongest uh, states in the region. Uh, and, and that has added another layer of complexity, uh, particularly with respect to uh, Israel and, and now uh, with Iran, uh, in terms of how to have a, a functioning regional security dialogue uh, when you have these abiding divides that uh, really inhibit or undermine the possibility for dialogue. So in a parallel universe, if uh, if there had been a, a, let's say, a unified response uh, to Israel, that might have accelerated the formation of some kind of uh, security architecture. Or if uh, it, it, we had a, a scenario where it were Iran versus all the Arab states collectively, uh, uh, that might, again, have elicited a different sort of uh, institutional development. But what's unique uh, in this region in the last, you know, is really in the entire era since the end of World War II is uh, that there's been an almost an unhealthy pluralism of of rival uh, security uh, coalition so that there's never been a long a long and enduring coherent group of states that have been on one side or the other of political divides um, and that that has effectively uh, prevented the development of, of the kinds of even weak uh, uh, security architecture that we see in regions like uh, like Asia yeah uh, absolutely and and um, you know, even if we look at the uh, at Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the African Union, um, we see much more robust architecture that has evolved over time, um, and and there just aren't those kinds of parallel processes in, in the Middle East um, to date. So uh, let's get into the uh, the sort of genesis of this project. How do you see, first of all, um, how does this question of security architecture fit in to the broader question of uh, human security uh, and and political uh, the development of political rights and of uh, of more representative um, or or better governed uh, framework for countries in the Middle East. So, by way of background, um, you know, we uh, together co-edited a previous volume uh, called Arab Politics Beyond the Uprisings uh, that looked more closely at, at politics in the region in this post-uprisings um, environment. Uh, and uh, a lot of those uh, studies and, uh, were focused on, on really country-specific conditions, but looking at, at politics more broadly, um, but uh, uh, you know, thinking about uh, what were perhaps some overlooked political drivers. Um, and um, when we conceived of this project, we wanted to, in parallel or in conjunction, uh, think uh, slightly more detached, more broadly, uh, in terms of, of the, the regional security trends that uh, obviously um, are linked, but uh, one can think about them uh, separately as well. Um, and you know that that's where that, that's where this this um, idea uh, originated, um, and. It was clear at the time when we thought about this project um, that uh, this this lack of architecture was an exacerbating feature, um, something uh, that aggravated existing uh, problematic trends. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, because the security environment was so bleak, um, we thought that, that this was a good time to to at least think proactively. Um, about what kinds of things might be possible. 
um, not the grand visions of a kind of a regional security end state in institutional terms, um, but perhaps a more practical look um, at, at things that can um, make things at least incrementally better. Um, and that's a, that's a good chunk of this uh, research um, is, about, is about just that. Here we're we're talking about uh, we're talking about a region where uh, uh, really bizarre things have become normal. Like uh, you know, Lebanon, where I live, uh, is still in a state uh, officially of uh, of hot war with Israel since 1948. There isn't uh, there isn't even at this point a, a ceasefire in place. So even though the the most recent war between these two countries ended in 2006, uh, there isn't even officially a ceasefire, which uh, isn't just a rhetorical problem. It's a, it, it leads to, you know, the, the, the perpetual threat of the smallest skirmish or misunderstanding along the tense border uh, erupting into outright war. Um, and this, uh, you know, this is rather than an anomaly, this is this is typical. We have, uh, you know, in the in the Gulf, Iran and Saudi Arabia don't even have the kind of minimal communications channels that even the Soviet Union and the United States had with each other at the height of the Cold War uh, and a state of, of aggravation between uh, Israel and even the, the Arab countries that have made peace deals with it uh, creates, you know, gaps over over any, everything from managing uh, uh, threats in the Sinai to, uh, you know, the wider inability to have like regional uh, regional meetings over even non-contentious issues like like water management uh, or containing fallout from nuclear accidents or the other kinds of of uh, regimes of say cooperation that that end up in other places leading to security architecture. Um, this so this is what we're we're talking about from the sort of biggest things where there you know there's no such thing as like a regional peacekeeping force to the smallest things where there's not even a forum where uh, one can talk about you know, nuclear waste, civilian nuclear waste or nuclear power, uh, or, you know, m managing, uh, garbage and contaminants and, and, and things like this. Uh, so what, um, what is, uh, on, on the table, what's plausible in this kind of, uh, you know, broken environment? Well, some of the previous attempts to, to broach these topics, um, have failed for, uh, some of the reasons you you just mentioned that the lack of major diplomatic breakthrough, and so in the post uh, uh, Madrid era, as part of that uh, uh, process in the Madrid peace talks, there was an attempt to to launch an arms control and regional security dialogue, um, and it failed when the peace process failed, uh, and so uh, we saw a kind of similar uh, uh, problem. Uh, with attempts to talk about a, a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East, uh, and so you know, if if you're tying regional security dialogue um, and its success to major political breakthroughs, diplomatic breakthroughs, it's going to fail. Uh, and so the starting point for uh, I think uh, my own thinking. Uh, and uh, what shaped, um, I think, the, the, the nature of this volume uh, is that we aren't going to have any of those major political breakthroughs. There's not going to be a two-state solution. Uh, there um, isn't going to be a, a major uh, uh, Iranian-Saudi rapprochement that fundamentally alters the regional security dynamics uh, such that 
we have a, a kind of new opportunity for institution building. Uh, and so it's born of pessimism, um, but uh, uh, trying to be practical within that, that overall pessimistic uh, frame to think about what are the things that might have uh, material impact on the lives and security of, of citizens of the region. Um, and, uh, you know, some of these things like uh, incidents at sea agreement um, can be the difference between um, professional management uh, of flashpoints and crises um, that, if left unchecked, might, might lead to something uh, much more drastic and, in the worst-case scenario, war. Um, dealing with um, uh, nuclear waste, uh, securing nuclear facilities, you know, a kind of lowest common denominator agenda for the region uh, that might even be able to um, overcome enmity. Uh, so, uh, you know, not asking uh, belligerents to, in fact, uh, um, engage with their enemies per se, um, but at least putting together a kind of lowest common denominator agenda uh, that at the same time can have real impact on um, on human security, on regional security. Uh, and so that's really the kind of, um, and particularly the, the last section of this volume, it is focused on on those kinds of uh, endeavors. Yeah, I mean, that's one of, one of the things I, I really liked about the, the 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 studies that came together here. I mean, so there's there's 15, 15 different studies which we're going to release online on on the Century Foundation's website, uh, tcf.org, and then uh, starting now in January, and then we're going to publish them collectively as a as a uh, edited volume in March. Uh, and what uh, what binds these most of these studies together is the idea that you were just talking about, which is that um, seismic shifts are are unlikely uh, or impossible, uh, but there's still some real utility um, in in tackling piecemeal uh, locally uh, in in one country or another, in one subregion or another, small. Uh, small levels of, uh, let's say, conflict or uh, just common threat management, um, and uh, and one of the things that I found really uh, sort of striking and, and and useful about these studies is that they they all they all take into account that most of these problems are fundamentally political as well as security problems. So we're, you know, we're talking about things that affect the way people live. They affect sometimes life or death, sometimes quality of life. They relate to governance and political choices and, uh, their security problems. Um, and, uh, uh, there's no sense in, in considering the security element in isolation. Um, but there is utility or there can be utility, at least in some of the cases that, that we studied here, uh, in tackling, you know, things that that can be tackled uh, in the absence of a more meaningful political discussion. So, I mean, you you refer to, to incidents at sea, which is a great example uh, of of a level on which you know maybe you could get uh, Iran and the Arab Gulf states to, to to talk to each other, or you know Qatar and its uh, currently estranged neighbors, uh, without um, you know waiting for a political uh, a political rapprochement that might never come. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we shouldn't forget that in, in real life ways, the United States is is a party to these um, happenings uh, and something like um, an incidence at sea agreement uh, might actually uh, have uh, real bearing on uh, U.S. military engagement with the region and the way that it conducts itself. Um, I think, um, you know, your 
chapter on on Unifil is uh, is quite instructive in terms of um, uh, the design of uh, preventative uh, channels of communication that are inherently limited, but despite those limitations, have have real utility um, and you know a channel that cannot overcome any of that um, uh, of the political dysfunction that creates the conflict to begin with. Um, but that kind of kind of useful management um, might be the difference between uh, maybe not even the escalation of full-blown war, but at least you know, thwarting uh, escalatory dynamics before they um, reach uh, a more uh, more dangerous stage. So, so maybe you want to take a, a second to, to talk about that. This is a, a common a common thread of, of a lot of uh, a lot of what we looked at when it comes to security architecture. Basically, uh, you know, in this in this case, you have two belligerents, Hezbollah and Israel, uh, who uh, wouldn't ever dream of of direct uh, negotiations over over anything uh, over one of the most dangerous borders in the region. Um, and there's a UN mission that's been in place for decades, um, and since 2006 has effectively acted as a mediator between. Hezbollah and Israel, uh, and uh, it's been within limits, very effective um, at uh, preventing uh, unintended escalations to war. Uh, and uh, in the event of another war, it, it probably will have uh, other humanitarian benefits in terms of negotiating uh, evacuation of civilians and other things that are that are good in an overall bad situation. Uh, what? Unifil can't do uh, is substitute for a political process. So, you know, what uh, uh, really needs to happen is some kind of negotiation that leads to a, a permanent ceasefire. Um, and, you know, down the road, uh, there are even more ambitious political settlements one could imagine that would lead to some kind of sustainable peace um, along this border. Uh, and uh, a security architecture framework doesn't even begin to address that. And we've actually seen, I mean, the, again, with Unifil, there was several efforts where Unifil tried uh, to to serve as sort of the the leading edge to sort of sneak in uh, negotiations over more contentious issues. And they actually had some very fruitful uh, conversations between uh, proxies for Hezbollah and proxies for Israel over, over long running border disputes. But, but once those questions were kicked over to the political arena, nothing uh, ever came of it. Um, and that's uh, you know, that's the sort of st a story writ large throughout the region, which is that, Technical management of uh, of conflicts, you know, whether it's negotiations, conflict mitigation, conflict management, are important because they help people live better, uh, or can help people live better. They do not uh, substitute for uh, uh, you know an absent political process, uh, and and for you know the sort of lack of integration that that we open up this conversation with you talking about the lack of economic and, and political integration the lack of of substantial dialogue uh between states even friendly states um and it's a real uh it's a real red flag about security or the limits of security architecture to look at the conflict in the gulf right that that even the subset of like-minded arab gulf monarchies that that live off of uh, uh similar petro economies uh can still fracture between themselves like uh uh the saudi coalition did against qatar uh and and you know it sort of suggests if those states can't have a sort of functional gcc as a security architecture um one should have very 
limited expectations about uh, efforts uh, elsewhere. Yeah, I mean that that's certainly that's certainly the case. Um, and as you mentioned about Unifil, uh, you know they Unifil as a mediating channel uh, cannot overcome the intent to go to war. Uh, so if either side is intent on going to war, um, that's the kind of political military decision um, that is beyond the realm of uh, of that kind of mediation. Um, but unintended escalation, which you know often is not, is not necessarily uh, a kind of top level political process. Uh, and it it is in that realm of of prevention that I think there is scope um, for proactive efforts. Um, and uh, you mentioned uh, the Gulf, obviously, as a kind of signifier of a failure on this on this front. And yet, even within this, again, this very bleak security landscape, I, I do think there is a shift in thinking in the region in the sense that even status quo powers uh, are now re-examining their, uh, their security posture, uh, they're re-examining their sense of, of threat, uh, they're thinking uh, more concertedly about uh, regional security. Um, and as we've often mentioned in our own conversations, um, the, the end result of, of some of that rethinking has often been quite negative. Uh, it's been a, a, a net negative for regional security. Um, but there is a different kind of dynamism, often, again, oftentimes quite negative. Um, but it, there is, uh, I think, the, the possibility for openings to at least introduce um, new uh, ideas uh, to the regional agenda. Uh, because I do think this is quite this is a this this moment is quite different. So one last one last uh, uh, thing I want I want to touch on before we close your your um, your understanding of the role the United States has played in uh, uh, in harming rather than helping the formation of security architecture. Could you just just quickly uh, explain how you see that. Cause I think that, I mean, that, that uh, is something that might surprise some of our listeners who are accustomed to thinking of the United States as uh, providing this uh, beneficent uh, security umbrella or, or, or over the Gulf as a result of the Carter doctrine. Um, and they, they might, they might be surprised at, at how you see uh, uh, the impact of the U S role. I would start off by saying that the regional dysfunction has been kind of written into the institutions of, of um, particularly the Arab world. Um, and so, you know, it, this isn't to say that uh, the, the, the kind of absence that we see at the regional security level is, um, is solely a function of uh, America's role or American intervention, um, because that dysfunction predates the United States. Uh, but what we can say uh, pretty clearly is that uh, um, is that U.S. the predominant U.S. role in the region um, has shifted the kind of the the focus for security thinking um, outside the region to the United States, um, and we see this, I think, most prominently in, in collective collective security terms, um, but also uh, I think it has stunted um, the imagination of regional diplomacy and conflict prevention. Um, we, we, we've seen this in, in terms of, uh, things like Libya and Syria, where regional processes are really not particularly robust and not particularly serious. Uh, and, 
um, you know, despite American efforts uh, in, in the Madrid era to 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 put this on the agenda in a kind of formalized way, um, something that I think is is important as a precedent. The, uh, the arms control and, and regional security talks of of, uh, of the nineties. Um, there hasn't been any American leadership on that front for for many years now, um, and uh, the, the role of the United States, I think, has has served to inhibit uh, regional uh, initiatives, um, and they were <laughs> mostly stillborn to begin with. So um, I would say that uh, uh, the American role has has aggravated some of those longstanding underlying dynamics. Um, and has put off a kind of regional reckoning with m many of these uh, security dilemmas and security issues. Let's uh, let's hope that in the in the coming years, some of the uh, initiatives that people can read about in uh, in these reports we're releasing uh, can lead to the piecemeal but still useful. Uh, regionally rooted uh, and uh, uh, incremental security architecture framework building um, that that could maybe start to to turn that tide. Uh, you can read the reports uh, that uh, we're talking about on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. The project is called Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.